Welcome to Beyond the Boardroom with me, Kieran Paul. Today, you will hear my discussion with Matthew Sauer of the law firm Woolery & Co. Now, this was a really fun uh, but informative chat, and I only wish I had met Matt decades earlier during my childhood quest to be a professional footballer. Why? Well, you'll find out now. Let's press play on it. Uh, so welcome, Matthew. Great to be here. And uh, now, as always here on Beyond the Boardroom, I have some fun quickfire questions uh, to get to know you. So, Matthew, cats or dogs? Definitely dogs. I have a three-year-old labradoodle named Rosie, <laughs> so I'm partial uh, there. Do, do you work from home? Uh, no, uh, we have an office, but I, I actually am in my home office right now. So she's, she's sitting probably five feet from me chewing on a bone. Uh, well, if she wants to input at any time, just, just let me know. <laughs> Whether you asked or not, she might. Uh, now what is the, uh, the last film you watched? The last film I watched was the menu on HBO. Uh, it was about this group of people that went to this tasting menu on this private island and it's kind of a suspense comedy it's it's fun it kind of makes fun of all of the high-end restaurants that have all these creative tasting menus and you know adds in a murder into the mix it's a it it was a it was one that popped up is one that i might like and uh it was pretty it was pretty good what is one important skill that you think everyone should have I think it's being able to sit in a room one-on-one with someone and have a genuine conversation. You'd be, I think, surprised at how many people struggle with that. And uh, I, th- I think it's very important. And I'm not talking group settings or anything like that. Just one-on-one, have a real genuine conversation with people. Well, we're going to attempt that now, but across continents, but we're still giving it a good go. <laughs> There's a lot of people watching, right? <laughs> Uh, now, did you want to be uh, a lawyer when you were younger? Uh, it was actually a sports agent, so sort of. And that's that's one of the reasons I actually went to law school was I thought that was a path to become a sports agent. I have since been dissuaded of that and given up that dream, but uh, it worked out for me nonetheless. Did you ever want to be a sports star and then realize, hang on a minute, maybe not, but then the agent? Or did you immediately just <laughs> want to be the agent? I think I realized pretty quickly that I was not going to be the sports star. I did play football in college, but I knew I was not going to be at a level that I needed to to play professionally. Yeah, same here, same here. Um, Now, how did you come to be involved then in the world of corporate governance, having wanting to be a sport agent? So I was told by a actually a, a practicing sports agent to start working on the corporate side um, to get into sports because that's the easier path and frankly, the better path in his, his opinion. And this was 10 plus years ago, probably 15 years ago. So I, I started down the path of, let me try to get into corporate transactional work. And I summered at Crevasse Swain and Moore here in New York in uh, a real estate private equity group, um, and did kind of a smattering of everything on the corporate side. And, kind of fell in love and uh, came back to Cravath after that and started uh, my corporate world. Right. Well, being a lawyer, you have a phenomenal attention to detail. How frustrating is it when your name is spelt wrong? Your name is Matthew, but you've only got one T. And obviously, 
the the more common is double T. So how many emails a day do you think you get with it spelt wrong? I think almost every email is probably I I shouldn't say that. Everyone puts it in on the email address incorrectly. They use two T's, but there are probably half the people who are careful enough to see that it's spelled with one T. I actually, when we started the firm, the first thing I did was register the two T's in Matthew email handle because I knew people were going to spell it wrong. And two T's, one T, it all pushes to to my uh, inbox. But the the thing I always tell people and where it confuses people is when I use Matt, I use two T's instead of one T. So I pick up the extra T there. So I'm not like a doormat. And that always confuses people. And that's where people always, uh, they, I've been confronted about that a few times. Yes, I suspect as a lawyer, doormat is not the thing you want to be putting down. <laughs> exactly. I, I go out of my way not to be that. Um, so tell us then about your role at uh, Woolery. Uh, the, law, the law firm is quite specific. In fact, boutique is the word that you use on the website. That's right. So both Jim and I, my co-founder, started the firm with the thesis that uh, there was a opportunity in the market for a service provider that drew on uh, a broad set of skills and background. So, you know, I spent some time running M&A at Scientific Games in Las Vegas when Ron Perlman owned it. Obviously, was I've been on the law side. Jim uh, ran M&A as an investment banker at JP Morgan, as an example. So we have varied business and legal backgrounds. And our clients wanted something where we could really put those to work and that the model lined up to be a true partner with them. And, you know, the big firm models, they're great. And I'm talking big banking, big law, big consulting. Uh, but they they do have their uh, shortcomings and, and intentionally where they can't sit with a client over just take a year span and really play for whatever the outcome when the client sees a value situation. Um, so like take a law firm, they have to, a lot of them are billing by the hour. It's hard for them to go off of that model and say, we're going to spend real investment time with this client over the next year because we hope and know or know that we're going to be able to drive an outcome that will have value for our firm and the client at the end of that. We can do that. And that's what we try to do. And so I always tell people that we are somewhere between law, banking, and consulting, depending on the client. And a lot of them look at us as the quarterback on the front end to help um, to help develop an idea or a strategy and then help them quarterback with bringing in the pieces like our partners at all of the banks or all of the, the big law firms. Uh, when we're going to do a transaction, say an M&A transaction, and we'll quarterback that process for the client all the way through with those partners. So then with with all that knowledge, how would you say uh, activist priorities and engagements changed uh, late last year, 2022, and of course, the first quarter of 2023 this year? Yeah, and and I think it's widely seen i mean there's there's been a few that have been announced and you've seen though that the overall numbers have been uh lower and i think that's just a 
some it's emblematic of the environment right now where there just isn't a lot of deal activity the market is uh full of uncertainty with the rate environment and supply chain issues all over the place and valuations i think are 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 still a little out of uh out of whack and dislocated from from where they should be based on the environment you know i think you've seen activists take a different tack i mean there are definitely ones that are pushing for low hanging fruit on the M&A side or low hanging fruit on the operational side but you're also seeing activists get involved more uh with ESG and you know in, in terms of ESG being at the forefront of a campaign like you see the engine campaign at at Exxon and there've been others that have been both public and private pushing for those types of wins and so I think it's just it's it's changing the lens on what's considered a win and how to drive value versus you know what maybe used to be the case when the market was hot you could do you could push somebody into M&A very quickly uh when the M&A market was was robust I'm Victoria Geddes of First Advisors and we sponsored Insightia's Corporate Governance in Australia 2023 report which you can read for free now. Could you define for us what makes hostile M&A because we see it all the time we <laughs> see it in the news the word hostile is it that hostile with M&A? <laughs> it's uh so I I always view hostile M&A obviously as a is a subsect of M&A and I would say there's no hard and fast rule on what's hostile. It's one of those things where you kind of know it when you see it because any contentious negotiated deal could be deemed hostile. And that could be parties that want to get a deal done, but when most people talk about hostile, it's where the target company doesn't necessarily want to sell or they don't want to sell to the buyer that is at the table pushing for the deal in that in that specific transaction and that could be somebody that you know just comes over the top with an unsolicited offer for a company but that also could be someone that uh where deal negotiations have fallen apart and so you've gone down the path for a few months and we've seen this all over the place where you've gone down the path you're friendly um and you're pushing towards a deal for one reason or another the deal falls apart and the buyer still wants to pursue the company and is willing to keep pursuing it in the face of a board or a management team that may be resistant to that uh to that transaction and that's that's where you see the hostile uh term really thrown around and that could be again it could you know dovetail with activism where you have an activist pushing and then they either have a private equity firm lined up to do a hostile takeover or they push somebody into uh the market that otherwise doesn't want to be there so with that then uh which is the most hostile MA campaign that you've you've been involved in so we represented uh, Darwin Deason in the takeover of Xerox and then Xerox subsequent uh, takeover attempt of of HP and the I would say that 
combination of deals because they happen in relative short amount of time was the most hostile that started just for for those that don't know is xerox was going to do a deal with fujifilm um and they had announced it darwin deason was the second largest holder of xerox he sold his uh company acs back in 09 uh 2010 to Xerox. He kept a a big chunk of stock, preferred stock there. And so he had a big vested interest in that transaction. Uh, Carl Icahn was the largest holder of Xerox and had been, had some board seats and had been making noise prior to that. Uh, The deal got announced. It was not the greatest deal from our perspective. We launched, uh, we being uh, Jim and I, and on behalf of Darwin, launched a litigation to block the merger uh the fuji xerox merger here in new york and then simultaneously ran a proxy fight to take over the board with carl icon um and we were able to successfully get a uh, first of its kind injunction in new york on the merger and then subsequently took over the board um and then as i said shortly after that if for anyone that knows that print industry uh, there's a thesis out there that consolidation is needed because it's a kind of a melting ice cube and scale helps. And so what we did at Xerox was we went after HP, who was you know probably the biggest competitor in the space. They were a bigger company at the time and launched a takeover attempt that uh, happened right into the teeth of COVID. And I always say that, you know, and we never know, but I always say that if we had the share annual meetings during COVID, we would have won that and the landscape would have been different. But uh, HP was able to cancel their meeting for obviously for good reason due to COVID. And uh, we dropped the takeover attempt. So we uh, ended up moving away from that. But that combination was day in and day out a knife fight all the way through and yeah i i don't know how you can get really any more hostile than than that period of time that we were dealing with there okay very hostile uh so moving on uh given rising interest rates and market volatility could mna and capital allocation activism see a significant shake-up this year i think so and and i think you're you're seeing that a little bit with the rate environment. I think there's probably a little bit of an opening up still to happen in the market before we really see M&A start to, to take hold. Um, and I think people just need clarity on on deals uh, and, and where that environment is going before they really are starting to take bets. But there's plenty of capital in the system there's plenty of uh strategics that have a ton of capital on their balance sheet private equity firms to do deals it's it, the the other piece to that is there are a lot of would-be target companies uh and i'll use that that term broadly that are looking at the environment and and we're seeing this across the board on uh, our clients and our relationships and and the bankers and lawyers that we're talking to with theirs around um, companies that would have otherwise been in the pipeline to 
be sold or they could have been a great target for an activist to push somebody to be sold uh, saying, you know, let's wait another quarter or two quarters or three quarters and see what happens and see where valuations are. I think there's still, as I said before, this dislocation and in valuation that is important to uh, actually consummate M&A deals. Obviously, if you have someone breathing down your neck, that's your dashboard's a little different than if you're doing a negotiated deal. But I think activists are seeing this too. And, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pay a lot of times for an activist to have a long, um, a long fight with someone. So, you know, the, the easier that putt can be to push somebody into M&A, the better it is for returns for activists, and then they can redeploy capital. Um, from a capital allocation perspective, there's a lot of scrutiny that's happening in terms of where dollars are going and what projects they're working on. Um, you know, you're seeing, you know, take Meta is is one big example right now with the emergence of AI where, you know, Facebook, you know, is obviously previously Facebook and they changed their name to Meta for the metaverse and they went deeply into this metaverse AR immersion and allocated a ton of capital that way. And it's looking like that may have been the wrong bet, at least in the near term. And they should have been doing what uh, Microsoft, as an example, is has been doing or Google has been doing to push more into the AI space. And so I think you know that's one example, but I think you're going to see a lot of that across various industries where there will be winners and losers in terms of capital allocation strategy, and that's going to, you know, give uh, a robust set of targets there for activists to to go after. I am enjoying the uh, sporting analogies you've used. I think we've had quarterback and some putting, uh, golf putting <laughs> in that. You'd, you'd make a fine sport agent. <laughs> there's still there's still time, right? Um, so I saw you noted your surprise at the time it took for the anti-ESG activism movement to take rise. What then did you expect and, and why were you uh, so surprised? I was surprised. I thought it would take hold much sooner. Um, I think you have seen uh, and it's been you know widely reported that the the ESG space has been a at the forefront for the last decade or decade plus of capital allocation and corporate governance in public companies and and private companies all over the all over the world and particularly in the US with you know kind of BlackRock being the big example of that and i always viewed that as a political uh plus policy game and you know if you look at the actual political world and the policy world, there's, you know, there's what's deemed left, there's right, there's center, and there's all of these different factions. And for, for a period there, you, you didn't see that in uh, the corporate governance landscape. And that what would, and I'm using air quotes, the right faction uh, the the non ESG faction was always just cast as you know entrenched management that wanted to focus on profits versus other things, and but there were no real uh, robust 
vocal capital allocators that were pushing that. And now, and now you're seeing that catch up. And uh, we actually just did a piece that is on our website uh, with uh, the boutique law firm Kaplan Hecker, um, where we co-authored a piece to directors and capital allocators around this dichotomy you're seeing now where you're having state actors, depending on the state, sue companies or push companies for uh, on both sides of the ESG debate. And directors are now stuck in the middle with how to allocate uh, their policy, their capital, and their strategy based on this world uh, where they're getting their their risk on both sides. And that's a it's a it's going to be a difficult environment. And I think it's it's only going to get more difficult as we get into the election season uh, more fully here. And because the the rhetoric and the idea of making a corporation the target of a political action uh it becomes more powerful and and you're seeing that a little bit with what's going on in Florida with Disney as a is an example of that um and i think you're only going to see that and there's going to be a push pull from these multi-state actors uh and corporations that have to navigate a wide range of political views not only across the country but across the globe Okay, and uh, we had the director of Icon, the Restless Billionaire, uh, Bruce David Klein, on the podcast last year, and he told us that Carl Icon has a button on his desk. Get this, right? It shouts, bullshit, 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 right? And whenever he presses it on his desk. Um, now, you've you've been been part of uh, things with, with Carl Icon. Did you ever hear it played, and who to? <laughs> I did not hear it played. Uh, I I saw it, but I did not hear it played. Oh, I feel like I almost had it played to me uh, when I was when I was in his office one time. But uh, thankfully, it was not pressed on me. Was there a moment where you thought he's going to press it? <laughs> there, there was. There's a uh, there's a funny story. We were counting uh something related to a to a deal and it was me carl and and one of carl's guys and uh i i thought the count was off uh on what we were looking at and we had to redo the whole thing there was a panic and then it it was it was really that something didn't add right and and i thought in that moment that it was going to be played there but thankfully he did not well, I'm I'm glad for you. <laughs> I I got out by the skin of my teeth there. <laughs> and and finally, um, say a company sort of is is looking for representation. Um, how would you like to be viewed by by those uh, perspectives? I I think it goes back to that role that I was talking about that we played before, where companies come to us as the trusted advisor that they can help think through ideas and be that sounding board uh, through whatever process they're thinking about or facing and that can help them all the way through and see that through to the value uh, transaction. Well, well, thank you for joining me, Matthew. Thank you for having me. This was fun. So as promised, I think that was quite a fun discussion. 
Do make sure to get your free copy of our latest report, Corporate Governance in Europe, as well, of course, as our episode here in which I went through it earlier this month. So all that remains for me to say is thank you again to Matt and thank you for listening. I'm Kieran Paul and I'll see you next time.